0: I want to begin today by sharing with you some advice that was compiled from children. And they're pretty good if you really pay attention to them. The first piece of advice that a child gave was, don't let your mom brush your hair when she is mad at your dad. <laughs> the second piece of advice that was given is, if your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. You can't trust dogs to watch your food. You can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. Sometimes the best one in the play is the one with the fewest lines. Now that's actually quite brilliant. If you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. That's a pretty good move. Never tell your mom her diet is not working. That's great for uh, husbands as well. (laughs) When you're dressed up like a princess, it's easier to act like one. If you want someone to listen to you, whisper. Never try to baptize a cat. (laughs) Based on Brother Jim's communion remarks, this one is true. When you want something expensive, ask your grandparents. And finally, don't say that the last one is a rotten egg unless you're absolutely sure there's a slow kid behind you. (laughs) I like that one. See, we can learn a lot from children, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. Now, last week we introduced a new sermon series that we're calling Likewise, and we learned last week that the term likewise simply means in the same way. So when Jesus said, you go and do likewise, he was saying, you go and do in the same way as someone else. And since Scripture identifies Jesus as the one who called us to follow him, the one who gave us an example, and the one who we are to walk in the same way as, then he is our likewise. He is the one We're to go and do like. So the premise of this series is to investigate what Jesus did so that we can, in fact, imitate him. And today we're going to examine the one story in all the Bible that tells us about Jesus' childhood. Now, we read it just a moment ago, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 51. And the whole story boils down to this. Jesus and his family traveled to Jerusalem for the annual Passover when he was 12 years old. When Jesus' parents began the return trip home to Nazareth, they couldn't find Jesus in their caravan. So they went back to Jerusalem, and when they did, they found Jesus at the temple studying with the teachers of the law. After an interesting exchange between Jesus and his parents that seems to provide a profound statement that hinted to his understanding of his identity, he then returned home with them. Not a long story, not a complicated story necessarily, but profound nonetheless. You see, when we started this series and, and, and you knew that I was going to spend some time examining Jesus' life, I, I'm sure the stories that you thought about were miracles and, and uh, inner encounters with, with people that had challenging theological statements to them. But this, at 12 years old, is just as useful for us to glean from as any story in the life of Jesus. So we're going to start right here. Start right here looking at the life of Jesus because even as a 12-year-old boy, he's teaching us what we should do. See, the question we want to ask this morning is what does this story, the the only story that tells of Jesus' life between his birth and his baptism, what does this story teach us about going and doing? And to answer that question, we first need to look at what Jesus did here. And the first thing you're going to notice is that Jesus went to Jerusalem because that's what God commanded. Now I know that some of you are thinking Jesus actually went to Jerusalem because his parents made him do that. And to some degree that's true. He was Only a child at the time, he didn't have a whole lot of say-so in what was going on in his life. And there are some of you who are children here today who are like, I understand what that's like. I didn't want to get up and come here today. My parents made me come. There are some of you who are parents now who can say that about your own parents, and now you're doing it to your children. And Jesus' parents did the exact same thing to him. Jesus' parents made him go to Jerusalem regardless of whether or not Jesus wanted to go. He did not have any say in the matter. But consider for a moment why Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem in the first place. Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 tells us that they went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Here's what you need to know about Passover. Passover was one of the three annual festivals that Jewish men were required to celebrate in Jerusalem. So if you hold your place in Luke 2 and you skip back to Deuteronomy chapter 16 and you look at verse 16 of Deuteronomy 16, you'll see that it says three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booths. Now, I know what you're thinking. That didn't mention Passover at all. Nowhere did it say Passover. It said three different feasts. It said the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Week and Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Now, here's the thing about Passover. Passover, which you probably know commemorates the Exodus, co- commemorates God's salvation of the Jewish people from their time of enslavement in Egypt, Passover is the opening feast of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's opening night. It's inauguration for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So actually, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread run together and often are viewed by the Jewish people as one feast. So according to Mosaic Law, and here's the thing, you can look and, and some passages throughout the New Testament, Luke chapter 22 and verse 1, John chapter 13 and verse 1, where the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts to be called the Feast of Passover. So according to Mosaic Law, all Jewish males were commanded to celebrate this feast before the Lord at the place of the Lord's choosing. Well, the place God chose to establish His presence among His people was the temple in Jerusalem. And that means that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem because the Lord commanded that they observe this religious holy day in that particular location. So Jesus' parents are taking him to Jerusalem because that's what God commanded them to do. But it's also worth noting that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41, that not only did they go to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover on this occasion, but that they went every year. Jesus' parents didn't just do this one time. This was a consistent habitual practice of that family. In other words, they weren't just obedient once. They were obedient consistently. And this habit that Jesus' parents began manifests itself in his life as well. He traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover shortly after his first miracle, according to John chapter 2. He traveled to Jerusalem for an unnamed feast or an unidentified feast in John chapter 5. He traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. That's one of the big three, as recorded in John chapter 7. He even traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, which is not mentioned in Scripture. It is also known as the holiday of Hanukkah now, in John chapter 10. And then in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John chapters 11 through 13, He also made an appearance in Jerusalem, for his final Passover which took place immediately before his crucifixion. My my point is you can look through the biographies of Jesus and you can see him traveling to Jerusalem for the feasts that are commanded and for some that are not. In other words, you can see just in his practice of observing the religious holy days that God prescribed that he's doing what God commanded Consistently. Now, if you're like me, you just simply chalk it up to him being the son of God. He was consistently obedient because he was the son of God. But I can't help but notice that God chose two parents for his son that also taught him to be consistently obedient obedient to god my point is this jesus saw in his parents the model of obedience the importance of doing what god said to do wasn't just something that jesus inherently knew it was also something that he was taught that he witnessed in his own household Jesus observed his earthly parents. He observed their faith. He learned from it, and he put it into practice himself. As a 12-year-old boy, and younger for that matter, he's seeing his family fulfill God's commands consistently. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Because that's what God commanded. In this story in Luke chapter 2, the interesting twist is that Jesus remained at the temple while his parents made the trip home. He remained at the temple, I contend, because that's what God deserved. And let me explain what I mean. So Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem because that's what the Lord commanded. And when that feast had concluded, we're told that Jesus stayed behind while his parents returned home. One of the big issues with this scenario has to do with how we should perceive Jesus' actions. Was this an act of disobedience to his parents on the part of Jesus? I don't think so. Namely, because then that would be sin. And as Talked about last week, Scripture consistently contends that Jesus was sinless. Instead, I think this was an act not of disobedience, but of desire. You see, it's important to realize that Jesus didn't remain in Jerusalem to shop in the markets or to enjoy big city life. He was found, in verse 46, at the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. I think Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem because he was thirsting for what temple life provided. And that is an opportunity to learn more about and draw nearer to God. You have to remember that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, up there in Galilee, a good distance from Jerusalem. In a small town like that, there would have been few opportunities for formal religious education. Scholars have pointed out that Jesus would have attended the synagogue school as a child and received instruction in the scriptures at home, but he would have had few, if any, opportunities to receive a formal religious education like Paul, who sat and studied at the feet of Gamaliel, according to Acts chapter 22, and verse 3. So in this moment, it seems that Jesus was making the most of the opportunity of learning while he was in the center for such education. And when Jesus' parents found him at the temple, look at his response. It's in verse 49 of Luke 2. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now that's the way the majority of our English translations translate this passage, but the New King James Version and the King James Version offer a different translation, which is just as appropriate. Didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? What is Jesus saying? Is he he being disrespectful? I don't think so. I think there's more to this statement than we often recognize. And it's worth pointing out because these are the first chronologically recorded words ever uttered by Jesus. I think, as one author wrote, he was genuinely confused by his parents' searching. If they had remembered his beginnings or recalled the words of Simeon, The temple should have been their first place to look upon returning to Jerusalem. Where else would the Son of God be but in the house of God? So Jesus' statement, I think, is an indication that he knows what he ought to be doing. And his statement is especially interesting when you consider his age. The text, as we've already pointed out, identifies him as 12 years old. Do we have any 12-year-olds in the audience? Would you raise your hand? Anybody 12 out there? There we go. Yes, 12 years old. You know what happens when a Jewish boy reaches 13? He celebrates something. It's called his bar mitzvah. Bar Mitzvah is actually a phrase that means son of the covenant. In other words, when you hit 13, you were there, from therefore identified as an adult male in the Jewish community. One of the things you did around this time was you began learning the trade of your father. For Jesus, this specifically meant that he would learn Joseph's carpentry skills and you know what scripture goes on to indicate to us that he did in fact learn that because if you were to skip over to mark chapter 6 and verse 3 he's identified as a carpenter by the 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 people who were present at the nazareth synagogue when he went there to teach He wasn't identified there as the son of a carpenter. He was identified himself as a carpenter. That means Jesus did, in fact, learn those carpentry skills that Joseph had mastered all those years. But here's what I find interesting when Jesus stood there and told his parents, I must be in my father's house, or more interestingly, I must be about my father's business. I wonder if he's declaring that he wants to learn the trade of his heavenly Father. If he wants to know his heavenly Father more, and if he recognizes that that's ultimately the job assignment for the rest of his life. See, here's the thing. Jesus went to Jerusalem because his family was fulfilling God's command to celebrate Passover in his presence. But Jesus remained in Jerusalem at the temple because he wanted to be about his father's business. That statement is an indication that in this moment, Jesus was prioritizing God. He understood at that young age that God deserved more than fleeting attention. That God deserved more than just annual celebration. That God deserved more than just part-time affection. That God deserved to have his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength. Jesus declared That God deserved to be first. Now that we know what Jesus did, let's consider with our last few minutes why that matters to us. And here's what I want you to take away from this story what you do matters because your faith is visible. One thing that stands out to me about Jesus is that he was an expert in observation. In Mark chapter 1, we're told that Jesus saw Simon, who would later be called Peter. He saw Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John, going about their everyday fishing tasks. These aren't the guys that most people would want to be their disciples because they're, they weren't highly educated, nor were they wealthy benefactors. But Jesus saw in them exactly what he was looking for in followers. Then you can go to Matthew chapter 14 and in verse 14 we're told that Jesus saw a great crowd and had compassion on them. The text goes on to tell us how he fed that crowd with five pieces of bread and two small fish. And what we uncover is that Jesus saw their need as well as an opportunity to help them long before his disciples did. You can skip over to Luke chapter 21 and verse 2. We're told that Jesus saw a poor widow that went unnoticed by everyone else because she only put in two small copper coins into the offering box at the temple. While this impoverished woman went unnoticed by everyone else because her contribution was insignificant in its amount, Jesus saw her unselfish sacrifice because she gave everything she had left. And one last example. You can find it in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2. You can find it in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. Or you can find it in Luke chapter 5 and verse 20. But all those passages tell us that Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic's friends who lowered him through that roof and into his presence to be healed. Jesus saw the faith of those friends. The point is that Jesus was always watching and he saw things that most others wouldn't or couldn't see. And I believe as a 12-year-old boy, he saw the same thing he saw as an adult when that paralyzed man descended from the roof. He saw faith. He saw the faith of his parents as they made sure they fulfilled the commands of God. And I think sometimes we de-emphasize the visibility of our faith because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, and verse 1, that we should practice, not practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then he said in, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5, or I should say he condemned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5 because they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And so we get it in our heads that it's okay for our faith not to be seen because he condemned it when the, hip, when the Pharisees did it and he told us that we shouldn't practice our righteousness to be seen. So therefore, our faith doesn't need to be visible. But let me remind you of a few other things Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he instructed us to let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, instructs us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see our good deeds. I'm, I'm channeling my inner bin right now. So that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, we're supposed to make our faith visible. That's what Go and Do is partly about. To make our faith visible to the community that we reside in. Because we want them to realize that there are genuine Christians out here who care about them and who absolutely love the Lord but they've got to see it. Jesus condemned displays of faith that were intended to bring glory to self, but he commanded, commanded displays of faith that are intended to bring glory to God. That's what go and do is about. What you do matters because your faith is visible, more so than the font on the screen. But what you do matters also because your priority is chosen. Jesus' declaration that he must be about his father's business was a declaration of priority. He was saying that from that moment on, God was going to take precedence in his life. And you know what? Jesus taught that such a declaration is expected of disciples. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus introduced a teaching about money by saying, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he concluded that same section of teaching. By saying in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Did you notice the language of love and hate that Jesus utilized? Oftentimes we think you can love more than one thing. We we believe it's possible to love your family and your friends. To love your work and your hobbies. To love your college team and your professional team. So when we hear Jesus say you can't love two things, whether or not we consciously do it, some of us take exception to that statement. I can love more than one thing. But what Jesus is communicating to us here is that there's only room for one thing at the top of your love depth chart. You may not realize it, but you have a depth chart. You have a love depth chart. You may not want to fill it out, but it exists. You may not want to share it, but it exists. And if God is going to be at the top of your love depth chart, that means everyone and everything else has to get demoted. See, Jesus is going to go on to say something else in Luke chapter 14. It's Luke chapter 14, verse 26 that Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot, let me repeat that, such a person cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus really calling on his followers to hate people? We know that There's no place in Jesus' teaching for literal hatred because elsewhere he commands us to love even our enemies. So obviously Jesus is not saying that we have to hate people in order to follow him. So what then is he saying? In the Bible, hating can mean something like loving less. That's the case in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 31, where we're told that Leah was hated by Jacob. Honey, that's not the case with me. That terminology is not saying that Jacob despised or disliked Leah, but that Jacob loved Leah less than he loved Rachel. In the same way, when Jesus said that one must hate his or her family in order to be a follower, he wasn't saying that we should dislike them, but that we should love him more. point he's making is that discipleship requires devotion discipleship requires prioritization discipleship requires us to declare who our one and only master is discipleship requires us to put the lord at the top of the depth chart See, prioritizing God means loving Him above everything else. That's why the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you know who said that? Jesus. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. What you do matters because your priority is chosen and your priority is going to be seen. It's going to be visible. It's going to be visible in the decisions you make, in the attitudes that you present, in the relationships you develop, in the places you go, in the activities in which you engage. It's going to be evident in how you spend your money, how you book your calendar, and how you spend your time. It's going to be evident on Sunday just as easily as it's going to be evident on Monday. What is your priority? Because I'll be honest, for the past year, our priorities have been challenged. Some of us have succeeded with priorities. Some of us have failed. And I hate to tell you this, but it can be visible. Is God preeminent in your life? Is there only one master in your life? are you letting another vie for the top of the depth chart? Because Jesus made it abundantly clear in Scripture that there's only room were won in first place. I'm reminded of Luciano Pavarotti. Pavarotti was a world-renowned tenor who passed away in 2007. Those of you old enough to remember him know that he was quite possibly the most famous operatic singer of the 20th century. In fact, he holds the Guinness World Record for receiving the most curtain calls of any musical performer. But at one point in time, Pavarotti had to decide whether he was going to pursue a career in music or a career in education. He was simultaneously studying voice under a professional tenor and attending college to become a teacher. Upon graduation from college, he asked his father, Shall I be a teacher or a singer? And his father replied, If you try to sit on two chairs... You will fall between them. You must choose only one chair. So Pavarotti chose singing. He was reflecting on that decision and once said, it took seven years of study and frustration before I made my professional appearance. It took another seven to reach the Metropolitan Opera and now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commitment That's the key. You have to choose one chair. If you want to go and do, then at some point you're going to have to choose one chair. Not for you to sit in, but for God. If you want to go and do, you have to put Him on the throne of your life and nothing else. And you know what? If you make that choice, then when you go and do, your faith will be visible. Jesus demonstrated at the age of 12 that we have to make a priority. What's yours? And if it isn't God, then let me just tell you, you made the wrong choice. And right now, you can make the right one. Maybe you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repent of your sins, and be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. And that's how you start your new prioritization. That's how you realign that love depth chart. It may be that you have become a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you have failed to prioritize Him and His will. And it may be right now you need to repent of that very fact. And you need to realign your priorities. We're gathered here as a church family because we are all failures in one respect or another. But we're all seeking to be perfected by Christ. And so we're here to help you. If you need to respond to this invitation... For any reason this morning, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.